For the last several days, I've been witnessing quite a spectacle, history in the making in many ways, a very sad chapter in one way and a very proud chapter in another way of American history as I watch leftist liberal Democrats washing the linen of the United States before the entire world, which no doubt has the Soviet Union and the KGB laughing with glee, slapping their legs in anticipation of yet the latest debacle in each revelation, which goes into the secondary, tertiary, quaternary levels of covert operations, revealing every conceivable secret the United States has ever maintained with regard to certain government agencies acting outside of the CIA in covert operations involving clandestine overtures toward future governments in Iran, the diversion, as they insist on saying, or the residual funds which were profits earned from the Khomeini's government with U.S. arms shipments to be diverted to the Contras or the freedom fighters as they've been characterized in Iran. You wonder as you listen to all of this why it seems the Congress of the United States is absolutely determined that they will have a viable Leninist, communist, government on the littoral of Central America, only a very few miles away from the Panama Canal, where incidentally, even during these proceedings in the last few days, the United States State Department issued a warning that all Americans should now stay away from the Panama Canal. Several years ago, I did a series of about five television programs, including interviews and many quotations from leaders in government on the United States giveaway of the Panama Canal. That originally we had effected a document which said the United States would retain that vital waterway in perpetuity. Millions of voices were lifted up in alarm that the United States not give away what we in the church know to be one of the sea gates, the gates of our enemies that have been provided to Manasseh one of the tribes of Israel, but that is beyond anyone in the Congress or the general public. But anyone can see that the Panama Canal is one of the most vital strategic waterways in the entirety of the world, separating, uh, actually connecting, the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans in that narrow isthmus of Panama as opposed to going all the way around the torturous journey of the Cape of Magellan or the Straits of Magellan and the Chile de Fuego on the tip of South America. Panama is also deeply affected with a disease which is quite catching these days called anti-Americanism. I'd like to take you back just a little bit in history right quickly to remind you that the United States lost in Korea, that we lost in the peace talks at Panmunjom, that we lost in the Pueblo incident. The Pueblo is still over there. We never did get it back. But Eisenhower lied when Gary Powers was shot down because the Soviets only told him part of the truth with the airplane and the captured pilot already in their hands, and he denied covert U-2 overflights from Iranian bases across the Soviet Union, this antedating the satellite spy system, of course. And later on, when they produced Gary Powers and his sophisticated cameras and shot down aircraft, Eisenhower had to admit that he lied. Now, on that occasion, for some strange reason, that quickly after World War II, with a famous general who had been the head of our victorious armies in Operation Overlord, the invasion of the Normandy beaches, and the successful conclusion of the war against Germany and Europe, they didn't decide in the Congress to try to impeach the president because he had lied. 
In this case, it was all right, because even though he had lied to the American public, he had also lied to the Soviet Union. And the ends justify the means, and so, of course, the American public very quickly forgave Ike, as they affectionately called him for lying. We were horribly embarrassed by the Garrett Powers incident, not the least of which was somewhat embarrassing to find that a man in that job, though he carried the very same deadly needle that was revealed Colonel North carried on his trip to Tehran, chose in that time not to use it. There were those who could second-guess the actions of Garrett Powers who drifted into ignominy later on who wondered why the man, if he was entrusted with that kind of a job, could not have simply used the lethal needle and at the sacrifice of one life have saved the United States an incredible embarrassment. So we lost prestige in that incident. We lost in Vietnam. As Colonel North has said, we won every battle, every Tet Offensive, every battle at Da Nang or anywhere else. We won. We won the battles in the Delta, we won the battles along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, we won the battles along the Cambodian border, we won the battle after battle after battle when the U.S. Marines had to take up all of the load because the Arvins, as they were called, were definitely not reliable. But though we won the battles, we lost the war because that had no front, it had no home front, just like Korea, it was a war fought by politicians in the White House and the halls of Congress along a parallel with no recognition of confluences of rivers, strategic mountain ranges, ports, railways, strategic cities, or anything of that nature whatsoever, but was to lean on an enemy, conditioned response, commission of troops to battles, piecemeal in order to bring an enemy to the conference table at the same time allowing an enemy sanctuaries. This was true in Korea, where the minute the MiGs fled across the Yalu River, they were safe from any reprisals, and where our bombers, and I was over there in a part of that, a small part, but nevertheless on an aircraft carrier, launching strikes across into Korea, where the aircraft aboard that ship were precluded from going across the Yalu River in hot pursuit of enemy fighters or bombers. It was a little annoying to me to learn when I first arrived on station in the 7th Fleet with probably 30-some ships, including three aircraft carriers, one big battleship, two heavy cruisers, four light cruisers, 23 destroyers, many submarines which were invisible, to find on one night shortly after arriving in that area that there was a freighter that went right through our midst with all of its lights on. We learned that it was Norwegian and that it was carrying a load of rubber. And, of course, it was going to a North Korean port. That began to impress upon a 20-year-old sailor at the time, Ted Armstrong, that all was not right in the war we were conducting over there, where friends and allies were busily carrying on traffic and commerce with the enemy, and where, in fact, we could not venture across a particular border in pursuit of that enemy. There was a complete misunderstanding between Truman and MacArthur when they met on the island of Wake. MacArthur, in the back of his mind, always felt that he would use the limited tactical nuclear weapons, if he had to, to bomb enemy bases and ports of supply, as well as even their raw material sources, air bases and the like, inside Manchuria. And always felt that in the time of the commission of North I should say in this case Chinese, not North Korean, they were already engaged, but Chinese forces 
from Manchuria in what had been a domestic struggle in North and South Korea that if the Communist Chinese came in, one of the major nations on the face of the earth with one of the world's largest standing armies, it was tacitly understood by MacArthur that he would use limited tactical, not strategic, nuclear weapons on Manchuria and bring the war to an end in one or two days. And so when Truman asked him in that meeting on Wake Island if he thought the Communists would come in, meaning China, MacArthur said no. Well, he didn't know that they had already come in, that they were already working their way down the frozen riverbeds into North Korea at the very time he made the statement. Thereafter, there was very great disagreement between those two men, two very powerful egotists. You probably read a good deal of it, maybe even seen some motion pictures attempting to characterize it, but be that as it may, once more, a true patriot, one of America's great soldiers, and like many great soldiers, a man of great ego, a man of great personal flaws, a man who could be viciously attacked by a leftist liberal press, nevertheless like one of David's generals of the armies of Israel in bygone times, that man was fired in ignominy and subsequently, of course, in retirement died. Why is it that the United States of America today seems intent on glorifying its criminals and somehow incarcerating its heroes. We seem intent upon destroying anyone with true patriotic, heroic, American intent, and instead by the millions we rush in to watch our television portrayals of Americans' great criminals. I should imagine if Machine Gun Kelly or if uh, maybe some other infamous criminal could walk into Congress today, he would well receive a standing ovation. Not Colonel Oliver North, who was involved in the interception of the hijackers of the Achille Lauro, actually engineered and ran the thing virtually himself, who was involved in the successful invasion of Grenada and engineered and, and did the entire thing virtually as a, uh, uh, an individual who was catalytic to the success of the whole operation, as we now know, and many other successful military operations. Well, as I watch all of this and as I see what is happening, it makes me first of all wonder why in the world a lieutenant colonel who really was following orders of his commander-in-chief and was a member of the staff of the President of the United States could be called before a hostile, democratic, liberal, congressional select committee and called on the carpet and grilled and in a grueling session time and time again, hour after hour, day after day, be impugned and ridiculed for doing nothing but the very level best he knew how. It does make you begin to wonder. Now the Democratic Congress is determined to wreck the last waning months of the administration of Ronald Reagan any way they possibly can. And they don't really seem to care what that is doing to the United States abroad or even here at home. They want to impeach him if they possibly can. You've watched the questioners just by every method possibly to come back time and time again from this and that and the new approach to try to somehow, if they have to ask it a hundred thousand times, to get Colonel North to say the president was directly involved, he gave the orders, his signature was on the documents he shredded, and they're trying their best, short of torture, which is practically what they're doing to the poor guy, 
to get Ollie North to say the president was involved because they want to impeach him. And they don't care what that would do to the United States abroad. Now back during the days when we had a crippled president, we had a whole different attitude in the American media at that time. You know that not once when I was a boy, a teenager growing up during World War II that I see, I didn't even know. I did not know until years later that FDR was a crippled man. Never knew it. He was sitting in a wheelchair during many of the sessions when he addressed Congress, but I just saw him behind the desk. He was propped up exactly like one of our number here has leg braces on and had to be propped up to take him to be stood up behind the podium when he was successfully propped up and so on. The cameras cut away and just got the bust and so on. That was it. They didn't zero in on the leg braces and show him in that condition because somehow it would have been unpatriotic. It was better to portray to the American people a vibrant, healthy president than to zero in on his affliction. Contrast that with the presidency of Gerald Ford. Remember the time he sliced a golf ball and hit a lady in the gallery over in uh, Palm Springs? Remember the time he bumped his head when he got in the Air Force jet? Remember the time when he slipped on the stairs at the White House? Sure you do. Remember the time he tripped on the rug? Sure you do. Remember all, all the fouls he took and the bumps he took on the head? That's some of the things people remember about Gerald Ford. Do you remember anything at all about the successful football experience or about his pre-presidential experience or his record in the Senate? Or do you remember anything at all about the man so far as his achievements? Most people will remember Jerry Ford through the eyes of the media as a bumbling, uncoordinated stumble bum who kept bumping his head. Now that's merely the contrast between the way the media portrayed the president during World War II and the way they have been portraying chief executives ever since. The Congress, apparently, is today the high priesthood of all righteousness, utterly devoid of any personal selfish motives, always acting in the public good, only passing laws that have all of the awesome stature of an edict from some divine authority, which must be obeyed down to the nth degree, no matter what the cost. They passed a law called the Bolin Amendment, which we've heard a great deal about, proscribing the use of federally appropriated funds from supplying the Contras in Nicaragua. And today they seethe in righteous indignation and hatred. You could literally cut the hatred, especially when Niels began his testimony, and when Inouye, who is a Japanese-American from Honolulu, formerly the governor over there, Senate now, and a member senator, member of the Senate Select Committee, and I imagine it's a little tough in one way, although I won't comment on that, for Colonel North to look into that face and to see the hatred coming out of it constantly, never once really in North's favor, every single time overruling every objection of his attorney, ruling against him absolutely without exception every single time. He finally got stung when he's looking at this Marine hero with a chest full of medals knowing he was wounded twice in Vietnam out there with bombs, mortars, and bullets buzzing, buzzing around, seeing men in his unit die and being blown to bits. And I guess finally it just got to Inouye on one occasion, and he had to chastise North at the close of the second day's session by reminding him that he, Inouye, had served on a, uh, an intelligence committee and had been given by the Congress, of which he is a member, a medal, which is the highest non-military medal that can be given to someone, and so on and so on. I thought that was absolutely pitiful to hear the man move to the point, although I was glad to see him make that mistake, that he felt he had to kind of 
come back up to somewhat near the stature of the man that he was investigating out there, Colonel Norris. So today they seethe in righteous indignation and literal hatred, which is not lost on anyone. I mean, these people absolutely hate Colonel Norris, and they hate Reagan, and they hate the White House and the administration. And so they point the finger at the National Security Council, part of the presidential staff, who sought ways to find a method around the Bolin constraints to keep the Contras alive and in the field. Now, I want to ask this. Probably a lot of you have been watching it, at least part of it. I've watched a great deal of it. How do you feel about it? What conclusions do you reach? Does it in any way affect you, or are you utterly unaffected as if you were watching a spectacle in the Soviet Union? Now, recently, the engineers went on trial, and in the first day's session, those who have been responsible for the disaster at Chernobyl have uh, gone to a Soviet court, and on the very first day, they allowed newsmen in there. Do you feel as distanced from it as you would as if you were looking at something happening in the Soviet Union? Or does it affect you in a rather emotional way? Do you actually feel deeply one way or the other? It seems that there aren't any people in the United States today who are ambivalent about it or just absolutely neutral who don't care one way or the other. There are quite a number of people who hate Ollie North, think he is a liar, who hate Reagan and believe that he is a liar and want to see him impeached or out of there or destroyed or whatever and someone like Kennedy perish the thought or some other Democrat uh, of which you know there are now at least what 14 of them already talking about running and probably will be 27 or 8 uh, thankfully including Jesse Jackson so by the time it's all over and so they would like to see the administration brought down on the other hand, and maybe they're in the minority, I don't know, but it seems that so far the major network polls have shown that the majority of Americans are very much in favor of the administration and certainly in favor of Ollie North and that Congress has really sort of gotten a tiger by the tail and really wants some help in letting him go because they have made Ollie North into a national hero overnight where all of a sudden 60-some-odd million Americans who have been watching that on a daily basis are identifying with that man who out of the well of his being will come forth with one emotional indictment of the Congress after another which you just want to stand up there and applaud where for the last few days you have seen and heard more of the heart and the emotion and the intellect of Colonel Oliver North if you've been watching it than you have any other human being maybe including your husband or your boss now that's bound to affect a lot of Americans. Already I've heard that people are putting out bumper stickers and t-shirts north for president. And I knew that would happen halfway through the first day when I heard what Congress was, was taking on here, that someone was going to begin to say, hey, this man ought to run for president. Well, a lot of Americans will like what they see. Does Congress ever make mistakes? Do they ever admit they make mistakes? Well, no, they don't admit it. Never, never, never. But do they ever make mistakes? Do you recall any mistakes that Congress ever made? Uh, if you know any history at all, of course, you can recall quite a number of them. I'm taken back very quickly to 1940. Now, what was happening in 1940? Well, the Battle of Britain was practically at its very height when it was unclear for a time whether the English would survive. Remember that Hitler had invaded the lowlands. They had all fallen. The Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, France was in Germany's hands. The uh, 
Attack upon Russia was imminent, hadn't yet occurred, but Scandinavia had been swallowed up except for neutral Sweden, so there was a huge war underway in Europe. Now, during that time, lobbyists in the Congress were urging that an upcoming vote be defeated, and they were very successful. Many of those lobbyists represented the interests of the home, cities, and states, and the economy from which these elected officials had been sent to Congress. And they worked in huge companies like the Ford Motor Company. They were financiers and bankers. They were capitalists. They were lawyers. They were businessmen of every stripe. And they had sent these people to represent their interests to the Congress of the United States. And a vote was coming up having to do with selective service. And they wanted to defeat it in the worst possible way. Because the last thing they wanted was for America to get involved in foreign wars. World War II was already underway in Europe. But you see, there were many businessmen in the United States, including top echelon businessmen in Ford, and in the great standard oil monopoly who were carrying on a tremendous amount of business with Nazi Germany, with IG Farben and with many other major cartels who were actually dealing in huge bank accounts set up in Swiss banks to where no matter the outcome, whichever way you shook the dice, it already, always came up with a six on every face of the dice. So these men simply could not lose in that event. I would like to bring your attention to a book that is now on the book stands you could obtain for yourself, which is one of the most electrifying and shocking that I have read. It is called Trading with the Enemy by Charles Higgum. From the back, I'll merely read this. No war was ever waged so fiercely against an enemy more savage. To win it, millions of Americans left their homes and families, yet even as a nation fought, sacrificed, and died, there were those among us, towering giants of American industry and high-ranking government officials, who embraced Hitler's cause. For them, war meant a thriving partnership with the enemy, a collaboration that not even the president dared call treason. It is called Startling, a shocking expose, a detailed and comprehensive picture, and it is indeed. It is far too detailed for me to even try to quote a part of it because it is so convoluted, so intricate, and so involved that it would be impossible to quote but a part of it. But actually, it is the result of an individual's own pursuit of now declassified documents as a result of a Congressional Act declassification of much of World War II history only a very few years ago, 1978 when this individual was going through documents in a course of a biography that had nothing more sinister than writing the history of movie star Errol Flynn. But what he began coming across, names and dates and places, led him on a trail that finally ended up in the Chase Manhattan Bank, IG Farben, Swiss bank accounts, some of the biggest oil and other companies in the United States, and the fact that there were people high in American government whose sons were fighting in the skies over Europe against Nazi ME-109s that were fueled by Standard Oil. And the proof is in that book. Now we all knew that Henry Ford had a picture of Hitler on his wall and was an ardent admirer of Adolf Hitler, but perhaps the American public did not have the faintest concept of the treason that was going on behind the scenes, reaching all the way to the United States Congress during 
World War II. I'd like to ask you, what do you think is a congressman? What is a congressman? Do you know? Do you know any elected officials in Tyler? Do you know any elected officials in your county? Do you know elected officials in your state? And I have to ask the person running the tape today that I may need just a little more time and is on that original tape, and I'll try to make it brief, but I do want to cover at least a part of my sermon here before I get through with the, uh, uh, what is just a preview here for it. Uh, a congressman, of course, is an elected official. All too often they happen to be lawyers. But as I said, they can be financiers or businessmen or real estate investors. They can be anybody. They can be construction people. And one day they begin to have somebody say, hey, well, that was a pretty good speech, George. We suggest that you, as a member of the Democratic Party, put your name in for mayor or whatever. And then sometimes they become state senators, and sometimes they become governors, and sometimes then they become a member of the United States Senate. And eventually some few of them once upon a time, every four years, becomes a president of the United States. Now these people are in office because they ran for public office and because they represented a constituency. Running for public office costs money. Elections cost money. Politicians must have backing. They have constituencies back home. How does a person get elected to the Congress or to the House of Representatives. Well, you see the regular state elections and you know every single time they come around that they're talking about Hall of Rock Wall. My son even did some commercials paid by the people who put up the money to put Hall in the Senate over here and uh, to send him from Texas to the United States. Understand, incidentally, his office has been deluged with telegrams and telephone calls and so on, taking the Congress to task, and Congress is beginning to listen. Matter of fact, some of them even told Lyman on his second day of questioning to tone things down a little bit because Congress was looking so bad in the way Lyman was attacking North that they made him back off the second day, and even that hit the news. So it's interesting that swarms of protests have been hitting even various state representatives, who of course are over there in Washington, as congressmen and members of the House of Representatives. Do you feel that the Congress is a high priesthood of pure people who never lie? I mean, does anybody really feel that? And yet we see them boring in on whether or not somebody apparently lied and being outraged if they lied to, as Colonel Orr said, save lives. Why, you can't do that. You, you can't get away with a covert operation. You've got to come in here and blab it all to Congress and let Congress decide in committee whether you go ahead. Of course, as Colonel Orr pointed out, we'd have never intercepted the aircraft that had the hijackers of the Achille Lauro aboard. We would never have had a successful operation in Grenada. As a matter of fact, you cannot conduct any operation, whether overt or covert, when it comes to military activity by taking it to Congress first. You know, the camel, they say, is a horse that is designed by a committee. Well, if you were to look at the labyrinthal discussions and arguments and debates that would be required before you could get any action out of Congress on one particular issue or another, you'd understand immediately how that would be absolutely ridiculous. You simply could never do it. Now, my question to you is, how is the Christian involved one way or the other? I ask, how are you involved emotionally? There are many people who picked up the telephone and have called in and said, I have not felt so patriotic in years. Young, one young man called the Tyler radio station and said, I'm going down right now today and joining the Marines. I can understand that. 
And I imagine that we will find that uh, volunteers for the Marine Corps have just taken a quantitative leap of uh, enormous proportions as a result of this young American man, of whom I think the majority of Americans are very, very proud. There are others who would like to see him done in as quickly as possible. Years ago, the church taught, based upon 1 John 2.15, Revelation 18.4, John 17.14-16, and other scriptures, which say briefly, Come out of her, my people, meaning Babylon the Great, that you receive not of her plagues. You're not a, to be a partaker of the sins of what is called Babylon the Great and the mother of harlots and mysteries and the abominations of the earth and so on. Jesus said when he prayed to the Father in John 17, I thank thee that they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And in 1 John 2.15, be not of the world, if any man is of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of life, and on and on and on, is going to pass away. But he that does the will of God shall abide forever. On that basis, the church taught, it is a sin to vote. It is a sin to belong to a military establishment. It is a sin, therefore, to exercise your franchise. It is a sin, therefore, to participate in a democratic process. I today take very great issue with those opinions, as I have in the past. When I presented a paper and submitted it to my father many years ago on the subject of voting, and I have something documented to that effect, you can read my own article on birthdays and voting, where the only reason those ridiculously disparate subjects are grouped together is because they were attacked together by the parent church, birthdays and voting. Why they were attacked together, I have no idea. They have nothing to do with each other. And so, consequently, my article on the subject deals with both of them at the same time. Are we living in Bible days today? Most people would say no, no. The Bible days were back before the close of the book of Acts. I will insist that we are living in Bible days. The book of Acts is an open-ended book. No doubt at the beginning of the millennium there will be other documents and there will be certain things that will be selected from church literature that God will perhaps add if he finds it required at some future era in time which will become a part of what we call the Biblos or the books of Holy Record, Holy Writ, or the Bible. A lot of people talk about the times of Bible days and they try to extrapolate from biblical situations and to apply to real life 20th century situations every nuance of behavior and to determine exactly how we should live and conduct our lives in this modern 20th century space age based upon the way those people lived back then in the good old Bible days. Now let me just blow that balloon completely away where it belongs for a minute. They lived in the days of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament times to which I now refer, in the days of Roman occupation, of poverty, squalor, sickness, and disease witnessed the number of sick people, blind people, deaf people, distorted and grotesquely injured and crippled people, demon-possessed people that Jesus continually met during his tenure on earth. Remember that the journey for Mary during her late pregnancy was a rigorous journey brought about by what? The demand for a census and a taxation. Those people were taxed in goods as well as in money, 
and they were forced to go to a central location depending upon their tribes, where no matter where people lived across tribal bounds, every so many years the Roman occupying authority absolutely required that they journey back to their home city. In my place it would be, I must go back to Eugene, Oregon with my family where they take a census and so on, because wherever I was born and where I grew up would be back to where I must go in this case. So even the birth of Jesus was affected, was brought about by the fact that the Roman occupying authority required a census and heavy taxation. Rome demanded tribute from captured provinces, and Judea was a province of Rome. Slavery was in vogue. Conscription into the Roman army was in vogue. A military authority could take the oldest, most crippled man and burden him with a heavy burden like a, a donkey and require him to go any number of miles, and Jesus spoke to that fact in the Sermon on the Mount. It was a terrible time. Not the good old days, not Bible days that were holy days where everybody was holy, but a terrible, terrible time into which the Son of God came as a living human being. Now, would God prefer that we live under the heel of a conqueror, under slavery? Look at these scriptures for a moment and see what the Bible says about slavery. Paul wrote, and I'm going to quote it correctly from the Greek, in Colossians 3.22, Slaves, obey your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. He didn't say flee. He didn't talk about an emancipation proclamation. He acknowledged they were slaves owned body, soul, and spirit by a master who owned a human being like a beast of burden. And he said, Obey your owners, your masters. Colossians 4.1 Masters, give unto your slaves that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So you see that the Apostle Paul was not privileged to have a political point of view that we may share today as a result of a bloody civil war in 1861-2345 in the United States, which resulted in the Emancipation Proclamation partway through it by President Abraham Lincoln, where the government of the United States eschews the concept of slavery, which was not always so, even in the early days, of course, as we know very, very well, including Washington, Jefferson, and so many others, Madison and the like. So he gives instructions both to slaves and masters and says nothing whatsoever does not indicate that he even entertained the concept that slavery was wrong. Does not take issue with slavery at all. Just says, since slavery is in position, here's the way slaves and masters ought to conduct themselves in the eyes of God. A little further on in 1 Corinthians 7.21, he said, and I quote, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called, whatever condition. Are you called being a slave? Care not for it, meaning don't worry about it. But if you may be made free, use it rather, meaning avail yourself of your freedom. How could a slave be made free? Well, he could be sold, he could be traded. He could be let loose, have an all driven through his ear. You can see back in the Old Testament, he could serve his time if he was indentured. He could fulfill a number of years. He could become injured to the point that he was unable to, to uh, carry out work anymore and perhaps be retired. But there weren't very many ways other than just the largesse of a very kind owner who decided to give a slave his freedom by which a slave could become free. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 29 for a moment and look at this as an historical verse and see if we could apply this to, say, even the American Revolutionary War. 
1 Corinthians 7 and verse 29. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not. Meaning, he was looking at a time of great, terrible trouble impending in his age, in his time. And they that use this world as not using it to the full or actually abusing it, misusing it, or availing themselves of things in the world and using it improperly. For the fashion of this world passes away. Notice verse 31. They that use this world, that is, who must live, perhaps engage in business, travel, whatever, in this world, as not abusing it, misusing it, taking advantage of it, overdoing it, whatever you would like, as a synonym. For the fashion of this world passes away. He then went on about marriage and talked about he thought it would be better if people didn't marry. No, there were people back during the American Revolutionary War who read that verse. Did that mean that they should not have married during that time? Was it applicable to every age right on down through all of history to today? Or are we reading an historical verse in the context of history written by the Apostle Paul to an individual church in the city of Corinth at a particular time in history where we are invited to take a look through a window of history into that particular time where every verse does not necessarily apply to every age of the church. If it applied to your great-great-grandparent, you wouldn't be here because they wouldn't have married, right? They would have read this verse and said, oh, well, we can't marry. Now, you know, some people look at the Bible a little ridiculously. I want to tell you that the literal application of really what is only metaphor back years ago of the parent organization led to people who might have been a delivery man for a soft drink company, one of whose maybe 27th stop involved a defense plant where he had to carry in some Coca-Cola bottles. The guy had to quit his job because he was in some way aiding and abetting a military establishment. I can tell you there have been lives that have been wiped out financially and economically involving second and third generations of children and grandchildren now by stupid decisions made at the behest of church leadership forcing an interpretation on this business of be not a part of the world which led people in the church to do exactly as Martin's uh, title portrays become a cult become a little government within a government and then get an us-them mentality to where the church is everything and everybody and it does everything, it decides everything and where people became so inured to the world that even in the case of available support, protection, financial or any other type of help, especially medical help and that's another story all by itself that I intend addressing someday very, very soon, believe me as a result of some things that the other organization has been doing recently, which is hanky-panky in the nth degree. But that they would simply eschew all of that and would look around like a helpless individual not even knowing what was available for them in the local community because they had long since thrown their franchise to the ground. They were no longer involved in participating in a democratic process. They didn't care about democracy. They didn't care about the government federal, county, state, local, or anything. They didn't know who their elected officials were. They didn't vote. 
They weren't registered voters. They just didn't take part because that was the world and we're the church. And so we pull ourselves in and we, we don't take part in the world out there. So consequently, some of them wouldn't even avail themselves of what the world was trying to do to help them. Let me ask you this. Are there any hints about democracy in Christ's teachings? Quickly, let's go to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 25 and 6. A couple of quick verses here without taking a lot of time with it. But here is the Sermon on the Mount, the very essence of Christianity. Jesus said, Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge. Oh, then he was dealing with a system of government in which there was a judiciary. Is that correct? And he was saying that the Christian might run into conflict with a judiciary branch of some kind of a government. And the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. So this is more than just judiciary. This is criminal justice. But you might find yourself involved in the criminal justice system. Verily I say unto you, you shall by no means come out thence. So the church wasn't going to intervene. God wasn't going to spring you loose. An angel wasn't going to provide you with a heavenly key. When you did something which was wrong, even in God's sight, which was also wrong in the public sight or in the, in the sight of your brother, and he throw, threw you in jail, you went to trial, went to court, and they threw you in jail, Christ says you're going to stay there till you paid the penalty. You shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. So he is admitting that a system of government, aside from a theocratic system, might possibly exist in the environment of Christians. In Matthew 5.32, he says this, I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, here's the famous exception clause that I could never get many people to understand, even if I diagrammed it for them on the blackboard, which I did, and they still didn't understand it. The word but, or saving for the cause of, except. They couldn't understand that. And how it applies to the remainder of the verse. Whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, the Greek word is porneia, which includes adultery. I'll just make that as a blanket statement I can prove it to you. It includes transvestism. It includes sodomy, bestiality, and homosexuality. It includes voyeurism. Any couple that get married and five years later the guy finds out her husband was arrested wearing a dress on an escalator in a ladies' department store in Denver ought to have a right to, to kick the character away and go marry somebody else. But in the case I speak of, she didn't. She had to live with the clod. Eyelashes and all. Whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication causes her to commit adultery. Now, wait a minute. If it is for that cause, then it doesn't cause her to commit adultery, does it? No, it doesn't. Saving for the cause of. So, if a person puts away a wife for that cause and marries again, he doesn't cause anybody to commit adultery. It's not adultery, is it? I couldn't get the leadership of the church to see that if I'd have had a funnel and a mallet to try to cram the knowledge into their heads. I couldn't get them to see that. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, for what reason? shall commit adultery, and so on. All right, he is an acknowledging a court system. He is acknowledging some administration other than the church to which a Christian would go and would obtain a writing of divorcement. The church was not in the habit of granting or not granting divorces. There is a law. There are lawyers. There are lawsuits. And Christians, by very bad actions, could get involved in lawsuits. If someone sues you at the law and takes away your coat, let him have your cloak also, and we're assuming that you did something 
which makes you liable for the suit. And perhaps you really were guilty, and maybe you did owe him your cloak. But the fact is that you are willing not only to pay what you owe, but more also. And you can take either argument here. You can say, well, you'd only be sued because it was wrong. Not necessarily. Christ already admits that a Christian can do wrong things, and if he does, you won't come out until he's paid the uttermost farthing. By the same token, if you're sued to the law and the suitor wins, and the prosecutor wins and so on, then you may have to give even more because that's the Christian attitude. There's a great deal more on this. I want to give you just a few examples. Matthew 8, 5 to 12, real quickly, when Jesus met a man in a military uniform. This would be like a Christian walking up and seeing Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North come up with a chest full of medals and a Marine Corps uniform. Jesus was in Capernaum, and there came a centurion, verse 5. Centurion was like the rank of a captain, wearing a Roman breastplate, Roman epaulets, a Roman helmet with the reddish like horse, you know, mane on the top of it, carrying a big Roman short sword and wearing the greaves, as they were called, around the leg and so on, and with all of the leather uh, short skirt that they wore. Here he was, no doubt, in full regalia, and perhaps with him a few armed uh, men, men of his coterie, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. Didn't he make a comment about the man? About his uniform, the fact he's in the Roman army, anything else about him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And gives Jesus a little short lecture about the way the military government runs. And I say to this man, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes. And this servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus heard it, and he marveled, and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west, many who? Maybe some of them soldiers, who learn the lesson when the boss says, Do it, you just do it. But some Christians don't know that kind of government shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the children of the kingdom, the argumentative, bickering, debating, religious, Jewish community of the Sanhedrin and the temple, the Sadducees and Pharisees, who he said sat in Moses' seat, shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. No comment about the military. No comment about the man's occupation. No comment about the uniform. And as you have believed, so it be done unto you. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Turn to Luke, the third chapter, and notice the case of the ministry of John the Baptist when publicans who were tax collectors came to be baptized. Verse 12, he said, uh, they asked him, Master, what shall we do? Now, he would preached a very powerful sermon. He brought these people to the very brink of repentance, and they were coming and saying, what should we do? And he said, exact no more than that which is appointed you. Here was a person who was a representative of the Roman government to go and to extract the didactra, or didachma, didrachma, I think I'll get it right, which is the double drachma. In fact, I'm not a Greek scholar, so forgive me if I got that wrong. I think it's the didrachma. And he acknowledged that that was perfectly legal, that the government could do that. But he said, in the conduct of that job as a tax extractor or collector, exact no more than that which is appointed you, because, of course, it was a place for ready extortion. And many of the publicans were crooks and cheats, were going fat on exacting more than then just giving some and skimming the rest. And so he said, be honest. 
And whatever the government says, you must exact, exact it and pay it into the coffers of the government. But don't take any, don't, don't skim any off the top. The soldiers likewise demanded of him, John the Baptist saying, who came in the spirit of Elijah, who was representative of God, of whom Jesus said there had never lived a greater man, one of the greatest prophets of all time. Were his values correct? Saying, what shall we do? And he said, get out of the army. That's what the church used to say to people. People who were within months or a year or so of retirement from the Air Force. Nineteen years in. Get out. You're not to be the servant of any man. Do away with this lovely uh, 40 year uh, retirement you're going to get of a good bit of money every single month from the rest of your life for nearly 20 solid years of military service. Because you see, you're not to become the servant of any man. So the church made decisions like that and handed them down through ministers who had never been in the military service. And I think in their own way, like in all ye, always had something to say when it came time to talk to a military man to try to rise up and pretend that they'd had some kind of an understanding or, uh, you know, their own machismo or bravismo or whatever, and to try to restore some, some battered ego. So there were many such decisions handed down by the church back in the decades with which I deal. So he said to the soldiers, after they said, and what shall we do? He said, do violence to no man, neither accuse or exact anything wrongfully, it says in the margin. It really is not accused, but exact. Once again, they were in a position that they could actually take money from people falsely. And be content with your military salary, he said. A great prophet of God telling men in uniform, in the Roman occupying army who are saying we want to become a Christian. He doesn't say get out of the Roman army as quick as you possibly can. He says be an honest soldier. Be a good soldier. Do not extract money from people and be content with that low subsistence salary they give you. You're going to have to deal with that because this is the Word of God and I'm not interested in posturing I'm not interested in people who talk about turning the other cheek, which Jesus certainly did, and with all sorts of ifs and innuendos about whether somebody's raping your wife. We got into that in a ministerial conference last year a little bit, and nobody ever asked the wives how they felt about it. They asked the men, you know, the men were all talking, well, if I, I do this and I do that, I know I'm very, very aware of what questioners would do to young men who would try to avail themselves of the college work program and pled that they were conscientious objectors back during the days of the Vietnam War when many young American men were being conscripted into the military service and they wanted to avoid it. I don't blame them a bit. And I don't think people who did that need to worry about justifying the course of action they took. That's all water over the dam. Each individual must do what he feels he must do at that time and place. But neither should such an individual judge an indiv another person who has spent his entire life in a military service. Perhaps because he was drafted, perhaps because he had no choice, perhaps because he was in the military before God ever opened the doors to his mind and called him in the first place. But there has been a great deal of that judging that has gone on among the ranks of the church in the past, and I've seen that happen. So. Jesus Christ, nor John the Baptist, said any word whatsoever to centurions or other people who were a part of a military organization. Notice Matthew 17:24 right quickly. I assume that I am talking to a group of taxpayers. 
Now, in order to pay taxes, you have to have income. And in order to pay property taxes, you have to own property. And when you have those two things, property and or income, that makes you a person who, by virtue of being a citizen of the United States of America, you have certain rights and privileges. But I look back upon years of experience with people who were all too willing to throw those rights and privileges to the ground. Yet when it would come right down to it, they would be more, you know, quicker to try to avail themselves of their human rights and of their legal rights than practically anybody. I saw a church that for years, of, of, of whom I was the spokesman, decrying demonstrations and sit-ins and in any way conflict with constituted government authority, in less than 24 hours do a complete flip-flop and have thousands of church members and ministers in a great big demonstration against a constituted judge of a Los Angeles County court and the combined police force of Pasadena, California. And the organizers insisted that women with babies ought to be in the front row. So later on in the newspaper they could say there were armed men confronting women with babies. Who told the women with babies? Get out there in front. We ministers will be way back here watching. It was interesting how quickly a church that for years decried the concept of any kind of democratic action. Do you know anything any more democratic than a demonstration? The two words almost rhyme. Is there anything more democratic than a demonstration? What's happening in the streets of Seoul and every other major city in Korea right now? But an upheaval in the general public bringing about an opposition government and concessions by the incumbent government, which is going to lead apparently to great democratic institutions being installed in the nation of Korea. It is a democratic process. Now, violence, no, it's not supposed to be. But believe me, violence almost ensued and did ensue when David Andean and Wayne Cole tried to get in their own administration building and their own uh, auditorium and were punched in the stomach by fellow ministers. It's interesting how quickly people can cloak themselves in the uh, democratic process who for years utterly just, you know, debunked the whole theory. Wanted nothing to do with it whatsoever. Over here in Matthew 24, I'm sorry, in Matthew 17 and verse 24, rather, when they were come to Capernaum, where Jesus had a home, and Jesus was a homeowner, perhaps had two of them, perhaps one in Nazareth as well, they that received the didrachma, I can't say that's a real tongue twister, to uh, didrachma, tribute money, came to Peter and said, Does not your master pay taxes or tribute? And he said, Yes. Jesus was a taxpayer. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, Well, what do you think, Simon? Meaning arrested him or stopped him and said this to him. Of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children or of strangers? And Peter said unto him, Of strangers. And Jesus said, Then are the children free. In other words, he was taking issue with the system. They should have been free. He shouldn't have had to have paid taxes. Tithing with the system that was in place in the temple would have been enough. The children should have been free, but of course this was a tax imposed by an occupying power and was tribute money. 
notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. So, notwithstanding, let us go along with the system. And you go, and it was a miracle, of course, and take up a fish, and you'll find a piece of money in his mouth, and you take that and give it to them. Let's look at Mark 12 and verse 14. The same issue comes up in a different way. Mark 12 and verse 14. The Herodians and Pharisees wanted to try to catch him in his words. When they were come, they said, Master, we know that you're true and care for no man, for you regard not the person of man, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is the famous time when he said, Give me a penny. And he said, Whose subscription is that? Verse 16. They said, Caesar's. Jesus answering said unto them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. You know the way that comes off being read by many people in the church in the past? Don't render a thing to Caesar. Ignore Caesar. Be in contempt of Caesar. Uh, be repulsed by Caesar. Get around Caesar. Do everything you can to avoid being a part of anything that Caesar's got going. And just pull yourself into a little cloistered, ivory-towered cult and render unto that cult the things that are that cult. But Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, didn't he? The Christian must render to the constituted government under which he finds himself, whether it was Caesar's, where slavery was in vogue, or the wonderful United States of America with a pack of liars called congressmen, and if that is the system we find ourselves in, we must be subject to it according to the rule of law. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. So there was both a civic responsibility Christ taught, a responsibility of citizenship, having to do with everything from tax paying to divorce, everything from the laws involving crime and the courts and criminal justice to such things as property ownership, and I'll show you another example of that right now. There was both a civic responsibility and a godly responsibility. There was a responsibility of citizenship and a responsibility toward God. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke 23, 2, you will see that a great false accusation was brought against Jesus Christ. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. We just read that he said, render unto Caesar, and went out of his way when apparently they didn't have enough money at the time, and actually either in his mind's eye through God's power saw that a fish had swallowed a coin somewhere that somebody dropped in the lake, or uh, God created it, I don't know. But anyway, got the coin and gave it to them. Did he say, don't pay taxes? No, but they lied about him. And it's interesting, Mr. Dart brought up the fact in a sermon many, I think a couple, three years ago, uh, out of historical research he had done, that during the time of Nero's torching of Rome, that many Christians lost their lives because of this same attitude I'm addressing today of total withdrawal from the world to the point that they were in effect saying, like some of the rioters in Detroit way back in the 60s, burn, baby, burn. That none of the Christians apparently lifted a hand to try to help put out the burning buildings and subsequently were accused of having started the fire because they were uninvolved. Because they just watched Babylon the Great burning to the ground and they applauded it and the word got out that they were uninvolved and wouldn't help put out the flames and many of them lost their lives as a result. I don't have all the factual details on that, but there is very great reason to believe that that was one of the reasons why Christians were persecuted after the burning of Rome. Because of that same attitude.
We found this fellow perverting the nation. Why would anyone call Christ a person who was perverting the nation when he was probably one of the most patriotic men who ever lived? This was a false charge. Forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, a false charge, saying that he himself is Christ, a king, a true charge, but he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight. So even that charge is actually false in the way they put it across. Let's notice Matthew, the 20th chapter, something having to do with free enterprise and with a democratic system involving ownership of land and what Jesus said about it. Matthew 20, verses 2 to 16. Won't read it all. This is the case of the laborers in a vineyard. He agreed with laborers in verse 2 for a penny a day, sent them out. The third hour he saw others and said, verse 4, go on and I'll give you whatever's right. And they agreed and went out. Sixth and ninth hour, verse 5, he did the same thing. The eleventh hour he came and found idlers and said, why are you idle? Go out and work and so on. Now when they came that were hired the eleventh hour, verse 9, they received every man a penny. But when the first came, they supposed they should have received more because they'd been talking out there in the field, hey, uh, what did he offer to pay you? A penny. Oh, well, what about that? Well, then we're probably going to get more than that, they began to assume. Suppose that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. Now, he's getting at, by metaphor, a very important concept in Christianity, that there are going to be those in 144,000 who will be in military uniforms who will repent and receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior in a matter of hours, a matter of moments of their lives, who will be the last who, he says, will be the first in God's kingdom, above a lot of so-called tired old Christians who are simply waiting it out and grow weary with well-doing, as the Bible says, and perhaps don't even make it into God's kingdom, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and you have made them equal unto us which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didn't we make a contract? Didn't we shake hands on it? Didn't you agree with me that you work all day and I pay you a penny? Take that which is yours and go your way. I will give unto this last even as unto thee the same amount. He worked an hour, but I made an agreement with him. But since I'm the landowner, I have the right of a landowner to make different agreements with different people at different times. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? What kind of a system was he portraying here? Lawful and legal ownership and absolute freedom in determining what a person would do with his own land and with his own produce, isn't he? That's free enterprise. Christ here is talking about freedom. He is talking about free enterprise. He's talking about barter. He's talking about different wages for different uh, numbers of hours work and so on, and individual contracts. He's not talking about communism. He's not talking about unionism, even though unions are trappings of a democracy. And he said, I did no wrong. Isn't it lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is I not evil because I am good? And then he gives the spiritual lesson, so the last shall be first, and the first last for many be called, but few chosen. Let's notice now in the construction of the church of God, Matthew 18, 15. I won't refer to the 10th chapter and how they went out two by two and a great deal of that, but skipping over some of this from the 16th, let's go to the 18th chapter. And here is a way by which brothers are to settle problems. If your brother trespass against thee, verse 15, go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
If he shall hear you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, then take with you one or two more. Now you have witnesses, you have third parties, and you have a caucus, or you have a committee, and you have more than one mind at work, and you're trying to reach a consensus that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, he neglects to hear this consensus of opinion of several people, tell it to the church. And obviously church leadership may well be inferred. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. So these were the threefold steps that were to be taken before a person was to be expelled from fellowship with God's people. Whatsoever you, he is speaking to the entire twelve, shall bind on earth, shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you, all twelve of you, shall loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say unto you that if any two of you, if two of you, not one of you, not just Peter, shall agree on earth as touching anything that shall be that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And I won't belabor that. It is two or three. This is quite a democratic system in that sense. It is a consensus of opinion of more than one person. It is not just one person, one man rule, like a Caesar or a dictator or an autocrat or a, an absolute monarch allegedly from the top down. Much of my life I heard the story that government of the people, for the people, and by the people is government from the bottom up. And government of God is government from the top down. And therefore this system of government is in defiance of God's government and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. I heard it all of my life. Let me tell you that as flawed as the democratic system of government is in the United States of America, it is the closest to perfect form of government the human family has ever devised. You ought to get on your knees every single day and thank God you live in the United States of America and that you have a Navy and a Marine Corps that kept it free for you through two years. I used to get so upset at people who would be so quick to claim their great freedoms and liberties and yet would go around through their entire lives uh, doing nothing but wiping their feet on the entire democratic process, would not register to vote, would not take part in anything that went on in the local community. I would plead with ministers to take part in their local community, ride in a narc car, ride in a squad car, go to a VA hospital, go down and visit the hospital and find sick people elsewhere than just in the church, and they simply would not do it because that church organization doesn't care about the world doesn't care about anybody but its own, and the minute you appear not to be one of the most deeply inculcated cultic own inside that little cultic group, they don't care about you either. Matter of fact, they kind of become paranoid and a little bit afraid of you. The instant you don't come to church, I can tell you about case after case after case. I remember one man that was just deathly ill. He was one of their greatest contributors. He'd sent two or three of his children to college. He'd given money by the years and the decades to the church. He never received one phone call as to why he wasn't coming back in church. Because people probably thought, uh-oh, he's dropped out. And he was sick of bed and near death. He was having a terrible time. Nobody even called him to ask, why, why aren't you in church? They didn't care. They were afraid. Maybe he's not coming back. 
Well, I can cite case after case after case about that. There is an attitude, I'm saying here, that by the perversion of the concept of love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, and carrying that to a ridiculous uh, extreme that was never intended, that people have actually just thrown their franchise to the ground and do not take part in any democratic process which actually is for their good and which would be very a very great blessing if they would do it. Drop my glasses. I wonder I didn't throw them against the wall here a moment ago. Let's go to Acts, the first chapter, verse 23, right quickly. In the beginning of the church, once again, we see a democratic process, and you simply cannot get around this fact. I don't care how people say they did this, whether they wiggled their ears, stood on one foot, or gave a one-eighth inch nod of the head, there had to be some way to obtain this information. In the first chapter of the book of Acts, we see that Judas was now dead. They continued in prayer and supplication, and Peter said, quoting some scriptures that I've gone into before, the Holy Spirit uh, encouraged him to use very disparate scriptures in the book of the Psalms, which on first reading, as far as you're concerned, would have no application to a missing apostle at all. But Peter so applied them, verse 20, and said in verse 21, Wherefore these men, out of 120 of them, which accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, and some of them were John's disciples, unto the same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection, because Christ was determined there would be twelve, which is a perfect governmental number in God's system of government and the way he knew, uses numerology and also a number that connotes new beginnings, organized beginnings. It's an organizational number, we all know. One must be taken from among that 120 to be ordained, to be a witness with us of his resurrection, and they appointed two. Now my question is, how did they do that? How did they appoint two? Well, there had to be some kind of a caucus. There had to be some discussion. There had to be some kind of an indication. You want to call it indication instead of vote, that's fine. But they had to either stand on one leg, they had to submit something in writing, they had to drop a long or a short stick in a pot, they had to wiggle their ears, they had to do something to indicate which two of these group of the whole 120, or one out of ten of them, they felt was qualified and why the other guys weren't qualified. They made a choice involving, and you've got to call this an election, and finally they, they came to a deadlock. They were so equal, they couldn't choose between the two. And they turned to God for the final decision, and they cast lots. I think it may have to do with the Urim and the Thummim, maybe the precursor of our dice today. I don't know how they did it, whether it was sticks or dice or pulling straws. Whatever it was, they looked upon that act as God doing it. God no doubt did intervene, and as we know, Matthias was chosen over justice. Probably both of them were very eminently qualified men, but God knew something or saw something in Matthias that perhaps made him even more qualified. And yet, interestingly enough, we never hear another thing about him. You never hear a word about him. We focus in on Peter and then a little later, Paul, and it's Paul's life and his young disciples and so on that we begin to see through the remainder of the New Testament. So it says... When they prayed, they said, Thou, Lord, which knows the hearts of all men, show whether of these two you have chosen. They chose the two. God chose between the two, that he may take part of this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go into his own place. They gave forth their lots. The lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And so Jesus Christ insisted that they should appoint 
a replacement for one of their number who was now missing. I don't know how they did it, by committee, by voice vote, by written ballot or what, but they did do it. It was a democratic process. God came to their aid when they reached a deadlock. If they hadn't reached a deadlock, they would have simply chosen one. God would have honored it. Another case I want you to read of in Acts 8. I'm sorry, Acts 13 right quickly. Acts the 13th chapter. How did this happen? There were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, he was not yet an apostle, and Simeon, that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, was one of his schoolmates, and Saul. All of these people together, Barnabas and Saul included, remember. They ministered to the Lord and fasted. So they were talking with people and holding Bible studies and visiting and praying and so on with people that came. From time to time they were fasting. Maybe a day, two, three, or four, I don't know. During that time, what do you think they were discussing? Obviously the world conditions. The church, the people coming to them and requesting baptism, far-flung areas, the political situation in Jerusalem, the condition involving the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Jews, the Roman soldiers, the aftermath of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, we don't know whether this was in the form of an angel, an audible voice, dreams, or simply the process of a great deal of talking to where an inevitable conclusion was reached by Holy Spirit-led men. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them, and Barnabas and Saul, I repeat, were part of that decision. You read that they were part of them, including all the others who were named in verse 1 of that chapter. Once again, we see how the Holy Spirit actually intervened in the course of deliberations. Now, were there political considerations here? Workload, people who were becoming converts. Would there have been, say, the political consideration, hey, I think Paul would be a liability in Jerusalem. Because, I mean Saul, because you see, he's known of people here, and some of the people here are the relatives, or the friends of, or the very people whom he threw in jail. Would that have been a consideration? Would that have been brought up by somebody? It might be better to send Saul out into the Gentile areas, out into the hinterlands, a little further away from Jerusalem. I can very easily conceive that that would have been brought up and a part of their deliberations. As I can see that when we have meetings about how to assign a man a particular responsibility, whether to approve a person for ministerial credentials, or whether to ordain someone, or whether someone ought to be a pastor of a church, that there are many different considerations that may be taken into account. So think about it. It was a joint decision in which Barnabas and Saul themselves were involved. At Acts 15, the Jerusalem conference, and I'll just quickly refer to a couple of verses and try to bring this to a quick conclusion if I can. We see that there was a doctrine here by which the elders and the apostles all had to get together and discuss involving circumcision. Verse 7, it says, there had been much disputing. These are orally spoken opinions, pro and con. Peter then rose up and spoke and said thus and such. Then the audience kept silence, verse 12, and gave audience to Barnabas, who spoke and said thus and such. And then Paul, who said thus and such. After they were through, then James spoke and said, Listen to me, etc., verse 13. James then said in verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is. He'd heard all the opinions pro and con. This had been a debate. It was the process of debate. You cannot label the word disputing anything other than disagreement on certain issues. There were people who had opposing and conflicting points of view. But finally, there was a majority consensus. 
And finally, when the leaders all went along with the majority consensus, James said, all right, we're going to finalize it. And James did not, contrary to church literature of 1978 written to the contrary, merely formalize what Peter decided. That is an abominable twist of Scripture, and you know it and I know it. There's the Word of God right before your eyes, and it's sacred and it's holy. Peter did not make the final decision, and James just formalized it, which I read in the Worldwide News. James decided and said, wherefore, my sentence is. But he did not decide contrary to the majority. James did not represent a minority of one who said, I'm exercising my prerogative. James spoke for the majority and made a final decision. And we all know that. Now, to please, it pleased the apostles and elders, verse 22, with the whole church. Who was part of this decision? All right, notice in verse 25, it seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord. Interesting. Much disputing, one accord. You can be agreeable and disagree to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, and so on. And so they went on, and a little later on in the next chapter, in verse uh, 4 of chapter 16, it said, they delivered the decrees for to keep that were ordained of the apostles, plural, not just one, not Peter, and the elders, plural, which were at Jerusalem. I want to conclude merely by reminding you that in spite of the fact that you might get, as I have in the last few days, very, very irked and irritated with what Congress is doing to Lieutenant Colonel North, it still is an exercise of the Congress of the United States, an exercise of one branch of our government, a select committee actually, which is supposed to be bipartisan, and thankfully it is, and you can obviously see the difference when you have a Democratic attorney as opposed to a Republican senator who wants to go on record as saying something and who questions Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. That in spite of the flaws and in spite of the emotion you may feel generated in your own breast, you are seeing the exercise of a government at work which is the best government on the face of God's good green earth today or that has ever been or probably ever will be short of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is a great and a wonderful system of government. We need to give thanks to God for it every single day. We could not be doing what we're doing right here today if it did not exist. It does have checks and balances. It is made up of people who have serious flaws. That's understood, as every president has had, and as the next president no doubt will have. We can't get around that because they are human beings. But do not feel guilty if some of what Lieutenant Colonel North says strikes a note in your heart of patriotism. Patriotism and belief in Christ and Almighty God are both very healthy motives, and they can coexist side by side.